0: you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 13. A familiar saying goes that the spirit of Christmas is giving. And, and I, I suppose that's true, although for most of us, we're more comfortable exchanging, really. I mean, uh, my, my, my grandmother was an odd person, helps explain some of my eccentricities, but anyway she couldn't stand for somebody to give her something unless she had something to give them back. Matter of fact, she kept things that she didn't like so that she could give to you if you gave her something for Christmas. And I I remember asking her one year, I said, "Mama, do you not feel a little bad giving away stuff you don't like? Oh, no, no, she said. I mean, if somebody gives me something, I have to give them something. And that's usually what we do at Christmas, you know. Maybe a neighbor makes a plate of cookies so we rush around finding something that we can, you know, give them, you know, because it it just feels awkward to receive. Receiving is not easy for most of us. For most of us, we'd much rather give someone something as receive something from them. That's not true when we're children. When we were children, we were always excited about Christmas. Why? we gonna get stuff. That's why children gladly receive. They have no problem with it at all. But as we get older, it becomes more and more difficult for us to receive. And yet, I want to suggest to you this morning that the true spirit of Christmas isn't giving, at least not on our part. On our part, the true spirit of Christmas is receiving. Here's why. At the heart of ...of Christmas is the wonderful news that God sent His only Son to earth to die on a cross for us. That we might receive the forgiveness of sin. You can't repay a gift like that. You, you, you can't give anything back that will in any way match that. All, all you can do is receive it. When you think about the great Christmas gift of Jesus Christ... There is nothing you can do to deserve it, nothing you can do to merit it, nothing you can do to pay it back. All you can do is humbly, simply receive it. But people have a hard time understanding and accepting God's grace because mankind is wired to believe that we get our salvation the old-fashioned way. We earn it. You know, We, we can do something... That will cause us to merit heaven. As a matter of fact, almost all of the world's religions teach that you must do something to earn heaven. If someone were to ask you, what is the primary difference between Christianity and all the rest of the religions in the world? I hope you would answer in this fashion that all the other religions in the world, including some that go under the banner of christianity teach that you get to heaven by your good works but the bible says but the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is credited as righteousness all the world religions can be divided up into two groups now i did a little research which means i googled it uh And and Google told me there are 4,300 religions in the world. That's a lot. 4,300 religions in the world. Okay, listen carefully. 4,299 of them are religions of works, various kinds. Only one is a religion of grace, and it is the Christian faith. Only Christianity says you don't do anything earn your salvation. You cannot earn it. God gives it as a gift. He gives his son Jesus Christ to those who believe. That's what Christmas is all about. It is the message that God offers to forgive your sins and give you eternal life through Jesus Christ the son. And all you can do is receive this gift. Now to illustrate this point I'm going to an unlikely place for a Christmas text. You know, a Christmas text should always be the birth of Jesus. Generally speaking, I would say that's true. But rather than going to the beginning of Jesus' life on earth, I want us to look at an incident that occurred at the end of his life on earth. Because I think it aptly illustrates this lesson of receiving. It captures the essence of what Jesus came to do. And the essence of Christmas, which celebrates the truth that God took on human flesh and come among us. This is a familiar, a familiar story, uh, how at the Last Supper, Jesus got up and put on a towel and took a basin of water and washed the disciples' dirty feet. And this action is a parable of why Jesus came into the world. And what he would send his disciples, us, out to do. So, three things. First of all, the reason that Christ came to earth. Christ came to save those who could never repay him. Why did Jesus Christ come to earth? He came to live a perfect life and to die a vicarious death. He came to die in the place... Of sinners, and all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. John begins this chapter by noting that the foot washing took place during the time of Passover. Jesus is the Passover lamb, the one that was slain to spare us from God's judgment when His blood is applied to our lives. You remember the story of the Passover? The Jews took a lamb. They, they cut its throat. The blood went out in the basin. They put the blood on the doorpost and the lentil. And when the angel of death came over Egypt that night and took the firstborn of all households, it spared the ones where the blood of the Passover lamb was over the door. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The only way that you can avoid the wrath of God is to be under the blood of Jesus Christ to have believed on him for the forgiveness of sin and received from him eternal life. One One of my favorite verses of Scripture is in this passage where it says, Jesus, having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. Oh, that is beautiful. Jesus Christ loves you you understand that and he will love you to the end my friend Gerald Perry died this week from complications related to COVID pneumonia and Jesus Christ loved him and he loved him to the end right to the end that that is a beautiful beautiful thought John notes that Jesus had come from God. That's the link to Christmas. He had come from God and he was going back to God. Jesus left the glory of heaven to be born to the Virgin Mary so that he could die for our sins. John also notes that God had put everything in Jesus's hands and he was willing for those hands to be nailed to a cross. The sovereign God was willing to let men flog him. Put a crown of thorns upon his head. Mock him. And then nail him to a cross. He was willing to do that because he loved you. Right to the end. Because he loved us. So he took his garments, laid them aside, his outer cloak, put on the towel. He began to wash the disciples' feet. But there's a twist When he comes to peter there was a undoubtedly a stunned silence in the room as jesus did this because this was a task that was normally left for the lowest slave in the house i mean you know the lowest servant you know you know when you when you go to work on a job you're the new guy you get all the dirty jobs well that was the job that washing people's feet involved remember this wasn't, you know, days of carpet and nice shoes and socks. It was sandals and it was a lot of dirt. These were some dirty feet, people, okay? And so when he comes to Simon Peter, in typical fashion, Peter spoke up and said, Lord, do you wash my feet? The pronouns are emphatic. That was the way Simon Peter would have said it. Do you wash my feet? Indicating, ain't no way. You're not, you're not going to do that. And Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but after you, afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, if I don't wash your feet, then I have no share with you. So Peter then says, Lord, not only my feet, my hands, and my head also. Jesus said, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. This interchange pictures God's grace, which is at the heart of the meaning of Christmas. When we first come to Christ, we are bathed. We are washed all over the Bible calls it the washing of regeneration. It is a once for all act. does not need to be replaced. You remember the, when the priests were uh, ordained and put into service in the tabernacle or a temple, the temple, they had a bath outside, first off, over, overall. And then in the tabernacle, and the temple, there was a laver. That's just a, a wash basin. You know, if you'd been around, you know, for, you know, my grandfather, it was a, a wash basin. You, you, you washed your feet and then you rinsed them. That's, that's what you did, you know. But a labor was for cleaning your feet every day. They didn't take that once-for-all bath anymore. That was a picture of salvation. Regeneration, we're washed all over. But we walk in a dirty world. The tabernacle was a $6 million tent that had a dirt floor. And the washing of the feet symbolized walking in the world. And we accumulate dirt. We sin. All of us do. Every day. Now, our relationship with Christ is fixed forever. By that one-time bath, he will love us to the end. But our fellowship with Christ is dependent upon daily, daily receiving that washing, that forgiveness of sins. John said if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To maintain fellowship with Christ, we need to apply his cleansing to us every day. By telling Peter if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus meant that if Peter would not allow him to wash his feet, then how could he submit his life to Christ and serve him daily? We begin with Christ by receiving his grace. We continue with Christ by growing in his grace. Notice that none of the disciples did anything to deserve Jesus washing their feet. He did not deny that he was the Lord, their Lord and their teacher. They they couldn't deserve this washing. Again, it was a a job done by the lowest slave in the household normally. Peter was uncomfortable with Christ doing that for him. He thought that he should be washing Jesus's feet. Not having Jesus wash his feet. Later, he was ready to lay down his life for Jesus. He didn't want Jesus to lay down his life for him. He he misunderstood the whole thing. Quite frequently we do too. But the story shows that Jesus came to cleanse us from our sins. To have a relationship with Christ, we begin by receiving His grace. And then we continue to walk in His grace. And that isn't a minor point. He says if you don't accept His grace, if you don't let Him wash you, then you have no part with Him. If you do not receive His grace to begin with, that washing of regeneration, then you're not going to be saved. But once you have received that washing... Then you receive that continual washing every day that represents sanctification and growing in grace. Now, I know at first glance, Peter's reaction looks like humility, but actually, it's pride. It stems from pride. Peter was not comfortable just receiving from Christ. No, Lord. I can't let you do that for me. I've got to do something for you. I, I just can't take it. I just can't. That's why forty-two hundred and ninety-nine of, of the world's religions are religions of work. God, I am not just going to take something as a gift. No, 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 no. I gotta, I gotta do something. I gotta climb some mountain, or I gotta do somewhere. I gotta, I gotta bow towards some city seven times a day, or I, I've got to do some something. In order to earn your favor. To earn this salvation. We have to understand that to enter a relationship with Christ. We must judge our pride. We must repudiate our pride. And enter into his salvation with no thought of repayment. To enter a relationship with Jesus Christ. We must judge and repudiate pride because pride prevents us from receiving grace. Pride wants to reciprocate. Pride wants to hunt up something in order to give to God in order that we'll even it up. Pride is embarrassed by receiving without giving something in return. Pride wants to offer God something so that we can pay our own way. Then the proud person can take some credit for getting right with God. But when you come to God, you must recognize you have nothing to offer Him. What are you going to give Him? Except really, really dirty feet. And pride often goes under the mask of Humility, Oh, Lord, never wash my feet. Oh, Lord, I, I don't have to do it just by grace. I'll work. Oh, oh listen, some of them people out there, they, they might want it all of grace, but Lord, I, I'll work. I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to get into heaven. Hmm. Really, Peter is embarrassed by this whole thing. And sometimes that is a sign of pride. I mean, these other guys needed their feet washed, but not Peter. His belief his dignity, you know. After all, his feet wasn't really all that dirty to start with. You can always tell when someone is not truly repentant because they compare themselves to everyone else. I remember a pastor who had fallen into sin some years ago, and he, after a period of time, he came up here and spoke to the pastor's conference, and he mentioned his, the incident in his life, and he said this, now some of y'all have heard that I, that I did something. But I tell you what, I haven't done anything no worse than you all. And I thought, ooh, I don't believe I said that. Because the truly repentant person believes, honestly, that what they have done is much worse than what anyone else has done. Because we've sinned against God, not against each other primarily, though we do sin against each other. But first of all, sin is against God. In Psalm 51, David said to God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Discomfort can be a sign of pride. Peter wasn't really comfortable with the Lord seeing how dirty his feet were. To receive grace, you got to admit how dirty you really are, how vile you are. an independent spirit, Peter could just as easily have said, Lord, I'd rather just do this myself. And you know, you then you wouldn't have to get down there and do it. We'd all rather just really save ourselves if we could, you know, rather than having come to come to God and admit that we are sinners and receive from Him that which we cannot earn. It'd be better if we could just do it ourselves. And sometimes pride is the driving force behind serving Christ rather than gratitude because he has given us a gift that is unspeakably precious and that we could never ever ever earn you remember what Isaac Watts wrote when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. To have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you must repudiate pride. You must judge it. And then you must receive grace. Salvation is God's gift to those who deserve his judgment. It's possible because Christ paid the penalty that we deserved. John 3:16, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life." What do you do when someone offers you a gift? You receive it. You receive it. Someone gave me a gift this morning. I took it and said, thank you. It was a gift. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It's a gift. John 1.12 says, He came into His own, and His own received Him not. But to as many as what? Received Him. To them gave He the power to become the children of God, even to them that believe on His name. You receive the gift of salvation by believing in Jesus, not believing in yourself. You could never be good enough to deserve heaven. You can't pay back a gift as costly as the gift of the eternal God become flesh. Let's suppose that let's suppose that you were invited to a billionaire's home for a a lavish dinner party and you sat at a table where all kinds of food and drink you could ever think of are on the table and you're and you're, you've got gold gilded plates and you've got gold flatware. And it's just, you know, beautiful live flowers everywhere. An orchestra is playing. It's a magnificent feast. You couldn't afford it in a lifetime. And as you go out the door, the billionaire is saying to people, thank you for coming. And you take a quarter and put it in his hand and say, here, I wanted to kind of offset the cost. Of the meal. Of, he'd be insulted. He'd probably throw it back in your face. What could you then give to God. To repay him. For the gift of salvation. Our human nature stubbornly resists God's grace. We want to pay our own way. Remember Jesus' parable of the, of the prodigal son. He squandered his inheritance on loose living. He ended up eating the food that the, the pigs were eating. He had no basis for deserving his God's love. He said, I know what I will do. I'll go home and I'll ask my father, make me one of the lowest slaves. And his father met him when he was still a long way off, ran to greet him, embraced him, killed the fattened calf and welcomed his son home. That's a wonderful picture of God's grace towards sinners who repent. But the older brother, you remember, was incensed. He worked hard for his father. He was proud of it. He thought if anyone deserved a party, it was him. He deserved the party. The son who was a sinner didn't deserve it. But he had worked hard. So when his father went out and pleaded with him to come back into the party... What did he say? Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you've never even given me a young goat so that I may celebrate with my friends. Not with you, Father, but with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, but when this son of yours, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He didn't understand grace. Matter of fact, he didn't even like grace. He wanted what was coming to him. What he deserved. That's where the vast majority of the world is today. They really think that they want to go stand before God and say, Give me what I deserve. <laughs> oh. When I go stand before the great God of heaven, the last thing in the universe I want is what I deserve. I want that which I do not deserve. I want mercy. I want grace. I want Jesus Christ to love me. And to the end. If we don't receive God's grace in Christ, we have no part in him. We begin with his gracious bath and we continue having our feet washed daily by his grace. And in that context and only in that context can we learn to serve our gracious God. We serve him because he loved us and gave himself for us washing us in his own blood. It's only when we learn to receive God's grace, that we can learn to give and serve properly. Once you've let Jesus wash your feet, forgive you of your sins, then you can wash the feet of others. You can forgive them of their sins. That's a great lesson here, that of forgiveness. There's nothing that any man on earth could do to me Would not mean that I would not have to forgive him because I have been forgiven an incalculable debt in Christ. I must forgive. I have no choice. No matter how hard it would be, I must forgive because God in Christ has forgiven me. We are imperfectly sanctified sinners. And other imperfectly sanctified sinners sin against us. But God is perfect and just and righteous and holy. And we sin against him. How can we ask him to forgive us if we will not forgive others? Remember Jesus again told the parable in Matthew chapter 18 of a servant who owed a debt of 100,000 talents. Eh, Somewhere around 150,000 years of wages for a working man. And his master forgave him. And he went out and grabbed some guy that owed him a hundred days wages, a large sum, but nowhere near compared to what he had owed. And he demanded that the man pay up or be put in debtor's prison. The point is, God has forgiven us an incalculable debt of sin. And we need to forgive those who've sinned against us. Withholding grace from those who have wronged us is not a Christian option. It's it's not an option. When we have received God's grace in Christ, we can offer correction to those who are in the wrong. And we can receive correction when we are in the wrong. And when we have received God's grace in Christ, we can serve others with the right motives, with the right expectations. When we have received God's grace in Christ, when we have freely received His grace, we can freely give of our time, our talent, our gifts, our money, whatever God puts in our hands, we can freely give. So the fundamental question that I'm asking you this morning is this. Have you entered into the true spirit of Christmas by receiving God's undeserved gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ he died for our sins he was buried and rose again the third day only by receiving his grace can you erase the debt of sin that you owe nothing you can do God's already done it God became a man lived a perfect life died in our place on the cross the Apostle Paul said it so beautifully in Romans chapter 6 for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord receive him let's pray our Father and our God thank you for this word now sanctify us by the truth Your word is truth.